That was good. It was good singing. Yes, it was. Good songs. Open your Bibles to Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20. The kingdom comes. The last two messages, we spent time introducing the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight we're going to see the details of that, of that kingdom. We'll see the time when the saints will, will reign with the Lord. We talked last time about the chronology of Revelation, and we said it's very clear. If you just take a natural reading, chapter 19 ends with the, the battle of Armageddon. It's the climax of the day of the Lord spoken about in the, in the Old Testament. Chapter 20, we're looking at, introduces the millennial kingdom. So at the end of chapter 19, this millennial kingdom is brought by the second coming of Christ. The Antichrist and the false prophet are then thrown into the lake of fire where they'll dwell forever and ever. And then having executed judgment on the earth, the Lord Jesus brings about his kingdom. He renovates the earth in verse 4, which is what we're going to look at tonight. And he sets up a reign. And there's going to be individuals who reign with him. And that's what chapter 20 is all about, the kingdom. And then in chapter 21, which we're going to get there, is the new heaven and the new earth, right after the great white throne judgment. So what comes after the destruction of all of his enemies in chapter 19 are two major events. Satan is bound in verse 1 through verse 3, and then his kingdom reign with the with his saints. Get it here. There he is. So our passage was outlined this way the binding of the dragon, that Satan is bound, and then the reigning of Christ with his with his saints. And we looked at the chronology, we looked at the character of God, we looked at God's covenants. And I said they all point to a real earthly kingdom where Christ shall shall reign. And we looked at that in verses 1 through, through 3. Look, if you would, at verse 1. We'll read this again and then get a running start. But we're going to preach verse 4 through verse 6. Look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a, for a, short, a short time. And this is what we looked at last time. John sees another angel. It's very clear in his hands. There's a key and there's a chain. And the angel has a clear agenda from heaven. He's to lay hold, he's to bind, he's to throw Satan into the abyss, and he's to seal it over. And then in verse 7, which we won't even see tonight, we didn't see last time, the angel's going to open the abyss, the key, he'll keep the key, and he'll open the abyss. He's going to release Satan after the, the thousand-year millennial reign. And so the angel's work's not done until the millennium is over. The purpose of the key 
we said, anytime you see a key in the Bible is divine authority, and the chain should be obvious. It's, it's to restrain. It's to bind Satan. And so this is what John sees in the hands of the angel. And verse 2 tells us who he's going to bind and how long. Look at verse 2. He says, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Who and, and how long? The person he binds is clearly identified. It's Satan. Four biblical identifiers are used to make sure we know exactly who John sees and who the angel is laying hold of. The angel has delegated authority from God. That's all the authority that any of us have. And he has authority to restrict, to lay hold of Satan. Now, we're not told who this angel is. Uh, likely, Michael, one of the archangels, we don't know, whoever he is, as some would argue, has to be strong in order to do battle with Satan. But I think that, that you don't really have to go there because the authority that he has is from God himself. And so just any old angel would probably do because it's God's power and God's authority. But Michael or whoever, that's, that's, that's fine. He lays hold of Satan and all of his minions that follow him, and he binds him for a specific period. He's held fast. He's incarcerated in the abyss, in the abyss, the bottomless pit, for a thousand years. And the result of that is in verse 3. This is all review. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was completed. After these things, he must be released. So the, re the result is that he is no longer able to deceive the nations. He's unable to do that until the thousand years. So the order is clear. Satan was not bound, then he's laid hold of, and he is bound, and the result is he cannot deceive any longer, meaning he was deceiving. And we looked at several passages in the New Testament last Sunday night about the work of Satan that he's doing right now on the earth. And, and the Bible even indicates that that work intensifies during the, the end time. Now, some people will think that the work of Satan intensified when Jesus was on the earth because it talks a lot about demons and exorcism. And just as a, just as a side note, we're never commanded in the New Testament to exercise demons or talk to demons or throw holy water on demons or any other such nonsense. We're never commanded to do that. Jesus gave the apostles authority to do that as part of the signs of, of his messianic reign. And there was no additional demonic uh, activity on the earth when Jesus was here. It's just that they exposed themselves. They revealed themselves because the Son of God is walking on the earth. And we talked about how, when we were in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus goes into the synagogue, Capernaum, a demon-possessed man is in the synagogue, and nobody knows it. He looks like a normal guy. And when Jesus comes in, then he throws the man on the ground, and he begins to cry out, um, what do we have to do with you, and, and so forth. He's forced to reveal himself. Well, that doesn't mean that there's more demonic activity. It just means that Jesus exposed the demonic activity that's there. Demons were active before Jesus came. Demons are active right now. Satan is active right now. And the Bible tells us that he's filling people with, with lies. We talked about one of those lies this morning, about how motherhood is unimportant. He's at work blinding minds and opposing the gospel. 
He's directing false teachers and deceiving people. Some of those people obviously are deceived themselves. Some of them are active workers of Satan. They worship Satan. They tell you that. And then others are, are deceiving and being deceived. They don't even know that they're a tool, but they're clearly a tool of, of the devil. He's leading his children who are sons of disobedience. He's hindering missions work of Paul. He's taking captive people to do his will. And he's freely walking about the earth as a devourer. And 2 Timothy 3.1 says, realize this, that in the latter days, difficult times will come. It's going to get worse, not, not better. And the Bible presents Satan active in opposing the church right now. But praise God, during the millennium, that won't be so. There will be no work of Satan anywhere on the earth until he is released. And so what will that kingdom be like? Well, John tells us next in verse 4. There's the, the reign of Christ with his saints. Now, don't pay any attention to that number one there. That should be a number two. And the PowerPoint... Uh, didn't convert there. So number two, the reign of Christ with his saints. Look at verse four. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. So notice John sees something different. He says, Then, in verse one, he says, Then I saw an angel, and now he says, Then I saw thrones. And John sees three things. He sees plural thrones. Did you see that? I saw thrones, not a throne, but thrones, plural. And then he sees people. There's they, or individuals, who are sitting on those thrones. And he references them in both verse 4 and also verse 6. And then they're doing something. Judgment was given to them. And they're reigning in verse 6. So verse 4, judgment was given to them. In verse 6, they're reigning. So that's what John sees. They're plural thrones. There's individuals sitting on those thrones. And these individuals are doing something. And he tells us what they're doing. They're judging and they're, they're reigning. Now, it's pretty clear, even if it didn't tell us that they are judging and reigning, it's pretty clear what a throne is for. It's to judge or to, or to rule. And it's also pretty clear that these thrones are, are plural. We've already pointed that out. The real question is who is sitting on the thrones, right? I mean, that's the, that's the million-dollar question. Who is this? Who's sitting on the, on the throne? And the passage only tells us some of those in this section of the Bible who are reigning. That's in the second part of the verse, and we'll get to that in a minute. Your Bible only says they. I saw thrones and they sat on them. I actually think the NIV, and I don't often do this, not that there's anything wrong with the, with the NIV, but, but I think they capture the idea of the original language very well. Listen to what the NIV, how it translates verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 4 of chapter 20. It says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Now, the NIV puts it that way. The New American Standard, ESV, talks about thrones and they that sat on them because the pronoun is supplied by the, by the verb. 
It's a third person plural. It's they. But we're still not told who they are. So who are they? Well, whoever they are, they're people the Lord's placed there. Can we, can we agree on that? Whoever's on these thrones, we know for sure the Lord has placed them there. And we also know that they're not angels. Because the Bible doesn't tell us that the angels will reign over anything. In fact, it tells us that we'll judge the angels, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. So they can't be angels. And we also know that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. So anyone sitting on a throne, specifically in his kingdom... It was, it was there granted by Him. They were given that right by Him. So these are human beings. They've been granted the right to sit upon these thrones above the King of kings and Lord of lords. So they're people and they're placed there by the Lord. You with me so far? All right. So the next question is, who did Jesus promise would be on a throne in His kingdom? Who did he promise would reign in his kingdom in other parts of the Bible? So, rules of interpretation. You look at the the immediate passage. You take all the information that you can gather there. And then you go to the larger context. And so, in this case, it would be Revelation chapter 20. And then after Revelation chapter 20, you go to an even larger context, which would be Revelation as a whole. And then after Revelation, you go to the New Testament. And then you end up in the whole Bible because the Bible interprets it it's itself. But you start here. And this tells us limited information. So who does Jesus promise would be on a throne in his kingdom? Well, I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 7 because here is one of the promises of who will reign in Christ's kingdom. Daniel Chapter 7, who is going to be seated on these thrones? Daniel chapter chapter 7. Now, we're not going to look at all of Daniel chapter 7, but this is a very powerful Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Jesus himself refers to Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember in Mark 14, 62... Not this Sunday because it was Mother's Day, but last Sunday. You remember when Jesus is standing before the first Jewish trial? And he's silent and he does not open his mouth. And then finally Caiaphas says, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Do you remember what Jesus says? I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel 7.13. He quotes... This chapter, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Here the Son of Man is is presented. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold the clouds of heaven. Behold with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Son of Man is the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah. The Ancient of Days is none other than the Father Himself. And He was presented to Him. And to Him, that's to the Son of Man, was in verse 14, was given dominion and glory. And watch this, and a kingdom 
that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve Him and His dominion. How long will this kingdom be? It's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be. Mm, Let me see what else I've got here. So we have got Revelation 4. I've got thrones. And we're looking at who is sitting on those thrones. So here, Jesus quotes Daniel 17. Revelation has already alluded to this back in John's vision in chapter, in chapter 1. You remember when John sees Jesus, sees the vision of Jesus, and he tries to describe what Jesus is like? He falls at his feet like a dead man when he sees the risen Christ. He says his head and hair were like wool, like snow. Well, look at Daniel 7, 9. Look at how the Ancient of Days, God Himself, is described. Daniel 7, verse 9, I kept looking upon until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his ha- the hair of His head were pure like wool, and His throne was ablaze with flames, and so on and so forth. This passage is about the Father granting the kingdom to the Son. And then the Son coming in clouds to claim His kingdom. That's what Jesus said in to Caiaphas, right? I am, and when you see me, you will see me in clouds coming in judgment. And when I come in judgment, I'm going to set up my kingdom. And then you, the Sanhedrin who are judging me, the Messiah, the roles are going to be reversed. I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to set up a kingdom. So this is all about the kingdom. It's about the future earthly reign of Christ. Well, look at what it says in verse uh, 14. We saw in verse 14 there's dominion. Look at verse 15, I should say. Here's the vision interpreted. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. And I approached the one, one of those who were standing by, and began asking him of the exact meaning of all of this. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints, watch verse 18, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And so Daniel says, help me understand what this is. He talks about there's going to be four earthly kings. These are Gentile kingdoms. And we don't have time to go into all of that. But what I want you to see is verse 18. There are four kingdoms on the earth. But the saints are the ones that receive the kingdom. The saints are the ones that go into the kingdom. The saints will enter and possess the kingdom. And look at what they will do whenever they, whenever they were there. Look, if you would, at verse 22. I kept looking in verse 21, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So the saints, again, there will be a time when they will possess 
the kingdom. Look at one final place. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom in all dominion, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Three times in Daniel chapter 7. It's very clear it's talking about the, the coming kingdom of the Messiah. It's very clear that kingdom comes after a judgment because that's the coming in the clouds and dominion is given to him. It's very clear that his kingdom will be everlasting and it will not be an end. It's very clear that there will be saints who will go into that kingdom. They'll possess the kingdom. At least three times it says that. And as part of what they'll do in that kingdom, they're going to have a delegated reign. So I take from Daniel chapter 7, Old Testament saints will be reigning in the kingdom. That's what it's talking about, Old Testament saints reigning in the kingdom. Well, who else is going to be in the kingdom? Well, turn over to who else did Jesus promise to sit on a throne in the kingdom? Well, here there's the promise of saints that possess the kingdom. These are Old Testament saints. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Because Jesus makes a very direct promise. I'm going to make you work at least this time and one more you'll have to turn. We're trying to define from the rest of the Bible who they are, the ones that are sitting on the throne. We're asking the question, who did Jesus promise that they would reign in the, the kingdom. Matthew, chapter 19, verse 27. So who else is going to reign? Did Jesus say any, anybody else other than the Old Testament saints? Well, yeah. Jesus makes a promise to the apostles here about reigning as well. Now, verse 27 says, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? Now, what's going on in this passage? This is right after the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life, to enter into the, the kingdom, which commandments, and Jesus tells him, and then... The rich man goes away, and Jesus makes this shocking statement. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say unto you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, who then can be saved? I mean, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And look at how he answers in verse 26. And looking at them, Jesus said, With people, with man, it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So they're reeling from this statement. It's impossible. I mean, if anybody's going to heaven, it's this rich young ruler. But Jesus says it's impossible not only for him, but for anybody to get into heaven apart from God. 
And now they're beginning to question, wait a minute, we've left everything and followed him. What's in it for us? And so Peter says in verse 27, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to him in verse 28, truly, truly, I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, you have followed me, you who have followed me, in the regeneration. That's another way of saying in the kingdom, when when God regenerates the world. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, a reference to Christ's reign in the kingdom, you also will sit upon twelve thrones, plural, And you're going to do something, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And not only that, everyone, in verse 29, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus makes a promise to the apostles here. It's very clear about reigning in the kingdom as well. And this is the response to their shock that the rich young ruler was not getting into heaven. What do we and the apostles receive? Now, here is another perfect place for Jesus to rebuke the disciples. You remember we talked about in Acts chapter 1? So Jesus has been with the disciples for four or for three years. Death, burial resurrection, they're restored. Jesus appears to the disciples. He teaches them for 40 days. And then they're on the Mount of Olives. He's getting ready to ascend. And what do the disciples ask? Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it was a perfect time for Jesus to say, come on, guys, we've been, you know, three years. I've been teaching you 40 days. Don't you know there's no kingdom coming? There's no more place for Israel. The church has replaced Israel. Here's another perfect place for Jesus to say something like that. Why didn't Jesus say, there is no kingdom? If the kingdom is now, how are the apostles and all who follow Jesus promised a place to reign in the kingdom? How do the Old Testament saints from Daniel reign, if that's, if that's true, if the church replaces Israel? Not to mention Jesus says here that they'll judge the twelve tribes of who? Israel. So, we're building our case here. You have the Old Testament saints from Daniel 7. They're going to possess the kingdom and they're going to reign in the kingdom. And now Jesus makes the promise to the apostles. When he takes his throne in the kingdom, they're going to reign with him. And they're going to reign over the twelve tribes. And there's one more passage. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I've already referenced this one. And this is going to complete our little throne journey here. It's a passage about lawsuits between believers. Old Testament saints from Daniel 7, apostles reigning from Matthew 19. And here's New Testament believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Does any one of you, 
when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law to uh, to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge, sit on a throne, they'll judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Another reference. How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is... Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide or discern between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. And just to make sure we know that he's talking about the kingdom, look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor swindlers. Revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So what's he talking about here? Well, if you want the full version... Go pull the message on 1 Corinthians 6. This doesn't mean that you can't use the law. Because Romans 13 clearly says God has appointed the law courts for a specific purpose. This is a specific kind of civil case where in Corinth a believer would have to go before unbelievers and would have to slander them publicly in order to win. In the system there, if you wanted to win... You had to bring all the dirt out that was possible. So one believer uh, loses a goat to another believer, and they're going to the law courts in Corinth and suing each other for that, or whatever it was. And they are slandering each other in a massive kind of way in front of unbelievers. And Paul says that's ridiculous. Solve those matters in the church. doesn't mean that you can't use it for business and all of those other things. My point with this passage, is there saints, New Testament saints, who are also going to be judging in the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we will also reign with him. So, turn back to Revelation chapter 20. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And God promises that to Old Testament saints in Daniel 7, the apostles in Matthew 19, and the New Testament saints are going to rule and reign in 1 Corinthians 6. But there is... One more group that's identified who will also be reigning, and they're the ones that are clearly spelled out in this passage. Look at the rest of verse 4. Plural thrones, the group sitting on them, judgment was granted to them, 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their right hand, and they came to life. And what did they do? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That should be pretty obvious who this group is, right? You talk about the mark of the beast. These are clearly tribulation saints. So I want you to notice, though, that when John sees this, he sees souls. I saw the souls of those, meaning it was before their resurrection. You see that? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. And earlier in Revelation, we see these same souls. They're under the altar. They're crying out for justice. You remember that? John sees these souls of martyred saints during the tribulation period. Some have asked, what will it be like before the resurrection? Will I have a body? Will I not have a body? Well, here's a pretty good answer. John sees souls, not bodies, before the resurrection. These are not resurrected till the end of this verse. But I want you to notice that John can see them, so they must be recognizable. And he can also tell that they're tribulation saints. And so they're not some kind of wispy spook or something like that. They're identifiable individuals. And the end of verse 4 tells what they do. They came to life. There's the resurrection. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, the they of verse 4, Old Testament... Saints, apostle saints, New Testament saints, and now tribulation saints. And Scripture says they will reign with Christ and will reign over those who enter into the kingdom. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're going to the saints are going to possess the kingdom and are going to reign in the kingdom? Well, we're we're obviously going to have a delegated authority from the Lord. We're going to carry out whatever the Lord wishes. I think MacArthur describes this very well, so listen to it, okay? I'm going to read it to you. To understand what that would, what we would, we would do, you just have to simply look at world leaders, or of governors, or of prime ministers, or of potentates, or of all the judges, all the chiefs of police, and all those who are responsible for education and all those who are responsible for the judicial process and all those who are responsible for legislation and all those who are responsible for everything that goes on across the face of the earth. That will be what the saints will do. They'll have delegated authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to carry out his will everywhere. There will be in the kingdom, there will be truth in education. There will be justice in the courtroom. There will be moral standards upheld in every area of human life. There will be honesty in the news media. Hallelujah. There will not be pollution on the book stands. Books will be filled with truth. Television will be filled with only with that which is true and carries out the agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ. The saints will be in charge of television, radio, education, social life, the judicial process, the legislative process, and every aspect of operation. His saints will reign with him. What a world that's going to be. Amen? Amen. I say come right now. 
That would be awesome. And yet that's what's waiting. And John says, they will reign on these thrones and we will carry out the will of the Lord perfectly. He has the ultimate throne. We have the smaller thrones delegated and judgment is given and reign, rulership is given and we will do that with Christ for the entire period of a thousand years. But now John turns to something sad. Look if you would at verse 5. The rest of the dead. So you've got some who are dead who come to life and are placed on thrones and they reign with Christ. And now he's going to talk about the rest of the dead. John sees another group here. It's a different group from the group that's resurrected and reigning with Christ. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. Now, here's the real group that's left behind. At least if you're left behind on earth in the rapture, you, you're still alive and you could potentially repent during the tribulation period. The odds are not in your favor. <laughs> but this group is left behind at the first resurrection. And all they can do is wait on the great white throne judgment, which is coming in at the end of this chapter. So who are these people? Well, if the Old Testament saints are resurrected and reigning, and all the saints when Christ was on the earth are reigning, which includes the apostles, and all New Testament believers are resurrected, and tribulation saints are resurrected and reigning, and that only leaves unbelievers, doesn't it, that are dead. Unbelievers. These are unbelieving, godless people who have died outside of Christ. And they'll be resurrected, but it'll be unto, unto judgment. There's a resurrection unto life, and there's a resurrection unto judgment. Look at what John says. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were, were completed. This is the first resurrection. That's the resurrection of the tribulation saints. They're the last group in the first resurrection. John clearly says the resurrection you want to be part of is the first resurrection, which is unto life. It's not only taught just in Revelation. Look at John chapter 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgments. Two resurrections, two kinds. One unto life and one unto judgment. Just like when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. There will be a resurrected body that will be fit for heaven. Flesh and blood can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. You remember that? A resurrected body that will be fit for heaven. And then there will also be a resurrected body that's fit for, for hell. If you would place a human body in eternal flame, it would automatically be incinerated. incinerated. And so the resurrected body, the resurrection unto judgment, there will be a body that will be able to withstand the eternal flame never perishing. It's where the fire is never quenched and the worm dies not. Two resurrections. The Apostle Paul affirms 
there's two resurrections in his defense before Felix when he's arrested. Look at Acts 24. He's talking to Felix. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, that's the way, the followers of Christ, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. The first resurrection is a resurrection of the righteous, Luke 14, 14. It's for those who are Christ that is coming, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Hebrews 11 says it's a better resurrection. And John in Revelation is seeing the final part of that, res- final part of that resurrection. Look, if you would, at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one. Blessed and holy is the one who is part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and once again will reign with him for a thousand years. The church saints who rise in the rapture are seen at the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. You remember chapter 19? Remember there? There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is for the bride of Christ. And so clearly the church saints have already been resurrected in the rapture. The Old Testament saints are the guests at the marriage supper. And both of those groups return with Christ in Revelation 19. When he comes on the white horse, there's an army with him. Marriage Supper of the Lamb comes before the second coming of Christ. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, New Testament saints, church saints, guests, Old Testament saints. Both of them are part of the army that come with the Lord. And now, in verse 4 of Revelation 20, you have tribulation saints. They rise and they enter the earthly kingdom. And they all reign over the physical believers left on the earth that go into the kingdom. Now, a large part of of the world's population will be wiped out. I mean, we walk through that, right? I mean, there's stars falling from the heavens, demonic activity, seas going to turn to blood. It's going to be a horrible time. One judgment alone, a third of the earth's population is totally wiped out. And yet there's enough left to to amass a mighty army. And Jesus is going to come and wipe out that entire army. Remember at the end of chapter 19, the Jezreel Valley is, is strewn with dead bodies. And the birds come for the great feast, the great supper. But there will be Jews and believers that were not part of that great army. And the Bible tells us that when the Messiah comes, they'll look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will believe at the second coming of the Lord. There will be people on the earth, specifically Jewish people on the earth, who will see Jesus Christ, will believe and realize He was their Messiah, and they will be converted and they'll enter into the kingdom. But they are still alive. 
and they go into the kingdom alive. And Satan is bound, and death is suspended, and you're going to go back to Eden-like conditions. The desert will bloom like a rose. Lion will lay down like a lamb. And you're going to go back to the time whenever people lived for, like Methuselah and others. And there'll be people, while death will be suspended, birth will not be suspended. So these people will have a sin nature. They'll be converted. They'll go into the kingdom. They'll have a sin nature. They'll have babies. And none of them will die. And that's where the large army comes from at the very end, that Satan comes out when he's finally loosed and he deceives. And yet, John says here that if you're part of the first resurrection, if you're an Old Testament saint that believed before Jesus Christ the Messiah came, you're blessed, you're holy. If you are someone who believed while Jesus walked upon the earth, you're blessed. Maybe you could say doubly blessed because you saw the Lord and you believed on the Lord. And then New Testament saints who die and are taken up, caught up with the Lord in the air, you're part of that first resurrection. You're blessed. And why are you blessed? Well, verse 6. Over these, the second death has no power. That's why you're blessed. And we'll see what that second death is next chapter. But it's the... It's the final judgment of the damned whenever they're cast into the lake of fire. And all three groups of these resurrected saints will reign with Christ in His kingdom. And that's how verse 6 ends. Second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they'll reign with Him for a thousand years. And that's what the New Testament says, doesn't it? We're a kingdom of priests. We'll rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And just so you won't forget, it's a literal period. He ends with a thousand-year length again. And look at verse 7. We'll cover this next time. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. This, and he'll come out and deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for a war The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Lots of population going on. And then that next battle is not going to be long at all. And then John will see a great white throne. And you'll see the resurrection unto judgment. And I guess my admonition tonight, it's Sunday night crowd, but I don't know who all's here. Um... The point is you want to be part of the first resurrection. How do you become part of the first resurrection? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Repent and believe before it's everlasting too late. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.